0: So during the bad times, you're going to have to put money in. You're going to have to cut costs. You're going to have to really roll up your sleeves and try new things in an economy where it's difficult to run businesses. But when it's good, you have to stockpile that money away for the bad times. And that's a hard lesson, especially for someone who works so hard 80 hours a week. If you start spending the money when you have it, you're not going to have it when you need it. just have to do whatever it takes to kind of get off the ground and worry about optimizing it later I think a lot of entrepreneurs in today's society they want to go right to billion dollar valuation and that was something that a couple of my mentors have told me is always compete on
1: up through this whole time then have you been single
0: (laughs) well that's another great story Nothing good will come unless you say yes. Yes to opportunities, yes to this entrepreneur opportunity, or yes to something else in life. But don't sell yourself short. Know your own value and keep trying new things. Hello, my name is Matthew Kalinske. I'm currently 36 years old, and I started a company called USA Staffing Services back in 2010. So we are in our 10th year of operation. I have started other companies along the way, but USA Staffing has been by far the most successful of the businesses. This company is unique in that it is a staffing platform for independent recruiters to allow them to place temporary workers without the headaches of the back office. And so we come in as an operational partnership throughout the country that allows us to keep our fixed overhead low, as well as diversifying our customers through the use of their end user customer preferences. So it really has optimized the gig economy when it comes to recruiters. It allows recruiters to stay at home with reduced overhead while maximizing their profit overall. Currently, we have about 200 authorized dealers, or we we'll call those recruiters, throughout the country. We have temporary workers in over 48 states currently, and we're really excited about our growth potential. We have been having significant quarter-over-quarter growth for 12 quarters in a row, which if you add up, that's about three years of continuous growth. With that growth, we have a lot of challenges that we've overcome. And every day we experience new challenges that we're looking forward to overcoming in the near future.
1: And so how does someone find you and what exactly do you do?
0: Our sales approach has both inbound leads and outbound leads. So part of our strategy has been to provide a service for people who are looking. And really the people who are looking are direct hire permanent placement recruiters. They typically have five to 10 active customers and they're always placing permanent recruitment placement needs. So what that means is ultimately the customer is looking to hire somebody and they're going to pay a fee for a one-time transaction. And when that recruiter finds that worker, they get the invoice for that fee and the customer pays. The difference between that and a temporary or attempt to perm operation is that you have to pay the employee on your own payroll during that temporary period. And so a lot of our authorized dealers have a customer. They're successfully placing workers there. Now the customer says, hey, I need help. I need a six-week project. Can you help me fill this six-week project with somebody on your payroll, temporary worker or a project-based worker? And they say, yeah, no problem. And then they hang up the phone and they're like, okay, Google search, back office partner. (laughs) And they find us that way. And so We provide a lot of solutions. We're quick to respond. The second approach is that outbound cold lead, which is we've had uh, experimented with a lot of different trials in terms of how to do that, but it's more of a brand awareness and a service awareness because there's only a few competitors in our space. A lot of recruiters don't know about our service, just a lot of other businesses in a lot of other sectors. We just have to let them know that this service exists and then their eyes are open, their ears are perked up, and and they're really interested.
1: Originally, I was just thinking your temporary staffing agency, but is it a little bit different? I don't know if you give us some examples that make it easier for everyone who's listening.
0: Yeah. So classified in a workers' comp and funding, yes, we are classified as a staffing agency, but we exclusively work with independent brokers called authorized dealers. And so our corporate headquarters, we don't have any in-house recruiters. We don't have any in-house account managers that work directly with end-user customers. What we are is a back office platform that allows authorized dealers or independent recruiters to come in and utilize our services. So a couple of examples. Okay. One of our authorized dealers, I'm going to just change the names up just a little bit, but our authorized dealer named Joe, he has been in a permanent placement recruitment firm for a long time. He has his own business name and he has his own business website and his own business customers. His customers ask him for a temporary solution And he signs up with USA Staffing to provide that solution. And so USA Staffing takes on the risk of the financing, takes on the risk of the workers' comp, and we provide all the operational logistical support to run his back office. So the customer is actually really happy with Joe because they get to work with Joe directly, but then they have a nationwide support partner behind Joe that can guarantee the payroll will get run on the temporary workers, that the invoicing will be taken care of, workers' comp everything will be legal. And so it's really an added benefit for Joe's recruitment firm.
1: So you're basically Ford and there's Ford dealerships all around yes. the USA. And then we go to the Ford dealership and we buy it. And I don't even need to touch the Ford, but they don't even know your USA staffing services. Like They don't even know you're a part of this. They think that Joe's company did all this.
0: Exactly, it's essentially Joe's Ford shop located in whatever city they're living in. And so really it's a perfect model and I've used that model multiple times. And so everybody goes to Joe's Ford versus Ken's Ford because they like Joe, he has a better service, but they're all Fords in the end. So great example Another example I like to use is insurance brokers, where you have, let's say, a Geico insurance agency or a state farm or something, one of those, and they're selling insurance. You actually don't ever give that insurance broker money. You give the money to the insurance company. And the insurance company then oversees the plan and the logistics, but you're working with that local broker who lives down the street from you because you know him or her and you've done business well together. And so that person doesn't take on any of the risk, but they provide the customer service associated with the policy. Very similar model. And so I kind of took a couple of different models and what I was seeing, and I merged them all into one called the authorized dealer model.
1: Very interesting. And thank you for explaining that. Makes it much easier. I think everyone hopefully is on the same page here now. But you said you're based out of Tampa?
0: We are. I moved down to Tampa in 2015. Started the company in Milwaukee, actually. Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's a great story if you like to hear the story of how we started up.
1: Yeah, well, we'll go back to that if that's okay. But I was just going to allude to, I don't know, are you a Packers fan or are you a Bucks fan?
0: I don't see many Bucks fans even in hardcore Tampa Bay. Yeah. (laughs) Although now that we're getting a new quarterback might change the story, but I am a Packers fan.
1: Okay. You already still have a good quarterback. So now finally Tampa, maybe they'll (laughs) finally get some fans now that you got a good one. Yeah. you basically all around the U.S. I'm looking at your website. You have about three to 4,000 employees or so.
0: Not that many at any given time. For the course of a year, projects start and end. So it does fluctuate throughout the season.
1: And then you're saying you have all these little dealers everywhere. Does other staffing agencies work this way? Because I've never thought of it, again, this model of using it in other industries, if you will.
0: A lot of staffing firms have branches. So we took that branch model where the company owns the branch, the company owns and hires a branch manager, oversees that branch as their own entity. We took that model and we said, what happens? If we put an entrepreneur in that spot, what happens if that entrepreneur is running their business well and they need to diversify their revenue stream? How much more power can we have in that market? So we did some analysis in terms of independently owned and operated firms compared to a branch model. The independently owned entrepreneur owned branches operations did much better because they're providing that higher level customer service. And so we're an asset to them and that they're able to continue that customer service with reduced overhead themselves. Most of those big staffing firms have branches, and those branch managers do very well, but they're all employees. They don't have necessarily profit sharing. They're not running their business the way they want to. They have to run how corporate runs it. And so those branches send their payroll sometimes or invoicing to corporate. They have a corporate headquarters somewhere throughout the country. And that's kind of how we act. We act as like a corporate headquarters for these entrepreneurs. The best part about it is I get to interact with entrepreneurs every day, always helping to solve their problems and really helping them survive, especially in an economic time such as recession.
1: Even now, let's just say I was the independent firm in Jacksonville, Florida, where I got my own staffing agency, but I'm actually using you guys. What percentage of my business is coming from you guys? Are y'all specializing in a six-month project, the example that you gave, or some of them maybe multiple years? Or just give me an idea of what percentage they're relying on you versus maybe having their own staff to put in these places for their clients.
0: So up until the point where they join us, they're getting 100% of their revenue from direct hire perm placement recruitment, which is a one-time transaction with the customer. In times of recession, direct hire placements go away. And so they do utilize uh, temporary staffing. Typically, 100% of the temporary staffing that they're running is through our program up until they're doing $5 million in temporary staffing payroll a year. At $5 million payroll a year, that's when it's more cost-effective to bring it in-house and to hire people. And the reason why is you need to get your own workers' comp policy, general liability policy, but you also need a payroll processor. You need a workers' comp claims administrator. You need a lot of people to bring it in-house. And so it's not one of those where you can just add one person and grow. You have to add multiple people all at once. And we've done the calculation on our site. It's about $5 million in payroll before it's cost-effective to move from our program to their own in-house program.
1: Maybe a stepping stone might help people. is like, hey, join the Facebook group first. And then maybe you can see some of these people and then hopefully join our group calls there.
0: I have to admit, you know, the Facebook group is good, but it doesn't even compare to the group calls. And even though the group calls are only once a month, it's just something that is light years better than even being on Facebook. And so I know you're like, oh yeah, Facebook, but no, it's it really, I mean, it is that much different. And. I feel like it's almost like the VIP experience where someone's trying to make a meeting to get to that next level, to that CEO or CFO. And I feel like in this call, I'm getting all of that. I'm getting five CEOs or five CFOs, like all there in the call to give me feedback. And it's amazing. It really is.
1: Well, Erica, I've got good news for you.
0: What? What's the good news?
1: Become a member to find out. Oh Well, interesting. Like I said, thank you for sharing all that about the model and how you thought about it, because it's getting very interesting how every business kind of has their own way to make money. Or I might've thought you were just that independent entrepreneur that had multiple branches all by itself instead of the model that you have is interesting and something we can all learn from. So yeah, you said you're in Tampa now. Do you want to reel back? you were saying kind of how you got started in this. And I don't know if you want to walk through some of these other businesses, maybe that you run to make this model for USA Staffing.
0: Sure. I'll start with the USA Staffing story because I think it's a great story. I love telling it. And then I can touch base on a lot of the more recent ventures I've been in. This goes back to 2006, about 14 years ago. I was in college at that time, Loyola University, so product of Chicago. I was one of those guys that had three or four jobs in the summer during the school year. Ran into an opportunity to start a temporary staffing firm in college. And so this was a unique opportunity. I had a partner at that time who needed help with some paperwork and the numbers and quotes, and I was really good at that. And he was really good at sales. And so what started in 2006 was a traditional model staffing firm where we got customers and placed workers. And most of the workers we were placing were our friends from college or fraternity brothers, you know, things like that. And it really helped, especially during that time where it was an economic recession. It moved forward three years later and I began to realizing that hey, I have a chance to go to medical school. So I ended up getting into medical school in 2010. In that time period transition between undergrad and medical school, I had this epiphany. I said, we have a great model, everything is working. What we have our limitation on is the physical presence and customer acquisition. I can continue to run the logistics overhead during the nights and weekends while I'm in med school. I just need more branches to sell. And so We had a network of recruiters in Chicago at that time, and I put the idea to them, hey, what happens if I just run your back office and you continue to focus on the front office or the front sales and recruiting and we can deal with everything else? They said that's a great opportunity. So in 2010 is when I incorporated with USA Staffing Services, and it was really a service company for staffing firms. And so 10 years later, I realized that the name is a little bit confusing, but I think it helps and hurts at the same time, which is a challenge when you think of your name to begin with. But over the course of med school, which is four years, and then I did a residency and a fellowship, I continue to grow USA Staffing Services to the point where now 10 years later, we've been on the Inc. 5000 list four times in a row. We continue to grow nationwide, and we can provide workers' comp in all 95% of all workers' comp codes in all 50 states. The journeys along there are priceless, and I have a couple of great stories to share with you. We talk about the hard work it takes to run a business, let alone while you're in med school and residency. I had a virtual team at that time. So I had four people on my team. And at that point, I was the only owner of the business. The sales rep would text me or call me and say, hey, we have a sales prospect meeting at 2.30 in the afternoon. Could you make it? And I said, of course I can make it. I'll figure out a way. And so if I was in a classroom at that time, I would go to the bathroom. I would take the call in the hallways, close the deal, get back into the classroom and continue to learn. When I was in residency and fellowship, I would take the calls in the hospital in different closets or hallways. And a few times that the fire alarm would go off. And so the customer, the prospect at that time would say, you know, Hey, what's going on in the background? I was like, Oh yeah, the office fire alarm's going off. I (laughs) have to go outside. (laughs) But there's so many stories of me like taking a call and jumping into a hallway to close a deal. And that's what it took. I mean, that's what it really takes to start a business from scratch. To grow it, do whatever it takes to grow it. Hard work has never been something I was afraid of. Even as early as college and high school, I was taking those two or three jobs. And so it was just a habit that I formed. And the habit was work your tail off as much as you can so that your life can be better. Those are a couple of good stories. Another story when we had a temporary worker starting off, I was helping with some interviews, you know, again, taking those same calls, but they would call late at night and they said, well, why are you calling so late? I was like, well, you know, I know you work during the day. I'm trying to be respectful of your time. (laughs) And we made it work. So we got through some hairy times and it's all paid off in the end. So
1: you were in Chicago this whole time when you were going to medical school, you said to?
0: Undergrad was in Chicago. Medical school was in Chicago. And then residency and fellowship was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and then I moved down to Tampa. So one of the benefits of owning your business is that you do have a lot of flexibility in where you can live and work. You have a lot of flexibility in terms of your work hours. And ultimately, if you have the right team around you, you can be almost twice as productive because your team could work during the day and I can work at night. And so we were really every day achieving more in a given 24 hours than most of our competitors were or are because we have just a better work ethic. We're expanding the day 18 22 hours a day, starting early, ending late.
1: Why did you decide to go to medical school if it sounded like you had a successful staffing business even before that?
0: I don't know. if The staffing company I had in college, it gave me beer money. It gave me a chance to enjoy a little bit, but I didn't know what the possibility was with staffing. And The whole purpose of the business was actually to pay off my medical school loans. And so I wanted to start that revenue process and carry it over. One of the things that I've learned since running a business is that it took about seven to eight years of running the business before I actually paid down the debts that I lent to the business. So it wasn't until eight years, almost say two years ago, that I was finally able to become neutral in terms of cost of the business. And that's something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't realize is that you have to withstand the good times and the bad times. And so during the bad times, you're going to have to put money in. You're going to have to cut costs. You're going to have to really roll up your sleeves and try new things, just like we are now in an economy where it's difficult to run businesses. But when it's good, you have to stockpile that money away for the bad times. And that's a hard lesson, especially for someone who works so hard 80 hours a week. If you start spending the money when you have it, you're not gonna have it when you need it.
1: That's a good quote. I agree with you there. I've always been good about never thinking too high. So when I do make money, I'm always saved it. I think you're about a couple of years older than me, but even when I graduated undergrad, we're basically going into a recessionist and I wanted to get into real estate. And every guy told me they're like, just generally speaking, a lot of those guys hadn't saved up money. So they got screwed and had to stop doing real estate and try to go find another job. But they said in the good times, make sure you save enough money where you have at least two years of salary to pay for going forward because there's there's ups and downs in within the economy or even within certain industry sectors. So good, important point there for just because things are running smoothly and maybe you want to keep growing. And that's the idea. All of us want to kind of keep doing that, generally speaking, but also be able to save enough money where if there are issues that you're able to get through them.
0: Yeah. And actually when you run a business out of your dorm room and you grow and you really don't have any overhead, when you buy a desk, you're like, oh yeah, I got a desk now. <laughs> I have a nicer computer. And then as you grow, you're hiring people. So I was always the mindset of let's reinvest any money. Let's hire more people. Let's get better tools. Let's constantly make our service better so we can outcompete on service. We never wanted to outcompete on pricing. And that was something that a couple of my mentors have told me is always compete on service never compete on pricing. And so we always improved our service, which justified us increasing our pricing.
1: During this time, what year did you decide to go back to medical school? 2012 or so?
0: Well, Actually, 2010 is when I finished med school. So I started med school in 2006.
1: So you did it right back to back?
0: Yeah, I did it right back to back.
1: All right. That makes more sense because I was just looking at your LinkedIn. I didn't see the medical school on there. So that's why I was a little confused.
0: Yeah, public opinion on that is mixed. So
1: tell me what that means. Yeah.
0: When people see that I'm a doctor, they get very intimidated. And I'm not a meme guy, strict I liked a lot of things. It's a lot of channels. But I keep going back and forth, but I should put the medical school on my LinkedIn. And LinkedIn is such a recruiter centric world. I don't want to be too intimidating to our clients. And so I typically leave it off.
1: Well, interesting. Was that just from an outsider point of view, or do you have some examples of that or one example of where you thought of that?
0: A couple of examples I can have is when I started off the phone, when I was in the hospital and then I was on a prospect call, I just noticed that if it came out that I was in the hospital working, they assumed I couldn't pay enough attention to them. They assumed I couldn't give them enough attention on the service end. And so they said, oh, you're a doctor full-time in medical school, residency, whatever I was at that time. Oh, well, you probably aren't going to service me the way I need to service. And so it was one of those things like right from the beginning, I just started suppressing it. Continuing through the motions. And in fact, after fellowship, up until today, I still practice medicine. I just take the night shifts, I make the most of the 24 hours that I've given, and seven days a week, and I maximize the value. So I do pick up some night shifts to help stay up relevant on that. Wow. I will say that the advantages I do use it for is with regards to nurse staffing. I know, you say medical recruiting, Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I've always had a passion for medical staffing and it comes through. We can do crazy things for healthcare staffing, mainly because of the fact that we have the ability to know what's going on in the hospital and how the billing goes and everything like that.
1: Up through this whole time, then, have you been single?
0: (laughs) Well, that's another lie. Great story. So I actually got married in 2009. And then that first marriage didn't work out. And it was a combination of residency, the business. I learned a lot of lessons during that marriage. And that the first lesson is when you do get married, you have to be committed to that other person. And at that time, I was committed to being a doctor and committed to making my business successful. And so she actually took kind of a third place and not good advice for anybody who is thinking about doing that. But when you're starting up a business, it's like you're getting married to the business. You have to put in a lot of time, hours, and energy. And at the end of the day, I didn't have enough mental, physical, and emotional energy to support that. And I take blame for that. It was my fault. What I did learn from my lesson though, and I did get married again, and I have two beautiful children now, and life is really good, but I definitely make time to spend with my wife and make it a conscious effort to be there for her and to support her and to love her.
1: That's what I was imagining. I mean, I had no idea. If you're putting that many hours into the job and you're doing medical school, I can't imagine having a relationship. At the end of that, was that difficult? Breakups, no matter what side you're on, are going to be difficult at some point. And especially, it sounds like if you're going through med school at the time still, and you're running this business, were you just so invested in these others too? That was just kind of like a blimp on your radar.
0: Yeah, I was like a blimp almost. In residency, you're required to do 80 hours a week. So 80 hours a week for four years was the norm. And then I was doing the business on nights and weekends. So you just add up, there just wasn't enough hours in the week. If there were more hours, I would have taken advantage of it, but I maximized the hours possible. And I was young and that's what happens when you're young, I guess.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you didn't have any social life, I imagine, either. No, no
0: social life, no. Yeah, and that was the other thing is that it was nice for me to have that person around, but otherwise, I would have just been a loner.
1: Yeah, we can tell through your energy. You seem like a nice guy and full of energy and exciting, and that's what I was wondering. It seems like it'd be pretty lonely if you're working more than a full-time job you're doing the residency and whatnot, and then also doing the business on the side.
0: But with entrepreneurs, you have to have that passion in whatever you're doing, because it's going to be a grind no matter what you do. Whether you're setting up a service-based business or whether you're creating a new part or a process for a larger company, you have to have that passion because it does take the time. And you need to be excited about what you're doing because you're going to invest all your money, time, energy, mental support into it. You have to be able to commit fully to whatever venture you're going to. Otherwise, it just won't get off the ground. It won't last. You know, there's a reason why so many businesses fail within the first couple of years of starting. It's just because you're not dedicated or you don't have the passion or it wasn't a good fit for the time. That's why I ended up writing a book about work, passion, life balance, which is being released May 5th. It really talks about the need for passion, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, you need to have that passion in your life to really have ultimate life satisfaction.
1: Well, you like the king of time management if you've got a book that you're coming out with now too?
0: <laughs> I learn as much as I can. I use Outlook as much as I can. Fortunately, iPhone. I mean, I'm a big proponent of iPhone and the fact that it keeps your calendar all in one location and there are some tips and tricks. And part of it, I feel it's my responsibility to teach my team how to better manage time. And if that's a tip or trick I can give, you know, I'm happy to give it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, let's go ahead and do it. That's what I'm wondering. Does he block off every 15 minutes in each day what he's doing or does he have any wasted time? I'm still in awe. I didn't know you were a doctor, too. I could understand, again, why you'd keep that off. I could see how it could scare clients or whatever. But just from a perspective of anyone who's listening, dude, okay, how are you able to do all this? So if you could let us know, that'd be great.
0: I kind of segregate items in my mind that I need to, to accomplish for the day and I make it a part of my routine to make sure I follow up with them. So recently, maybe the last four years, I really use the calendar to my advantage. I use it to schedule across ventures, the time I need to be able to take. I have all of the video sharing conference call software on apps on my phone, and my computers are used to supplement my phone and my schedule. So There's apps, for instance, Microsoft To-Do app, which I'm a big fan of. We're a Microsoft-based company for USA Staffing Services. So everything we do is Outlook and Microsoft Teams and To-Do. And so I can communicate with my team members through Teams. We can set up To-Dos and follow-ups. And then Microsoft also has a lot of planning tools that we can set up a schedule for. But really, it's teaching your team members how you think so that you can hand off responsibilities appropriately. And so that's a big challenge. Entrepreneurs across the country, across all industries, there has to be some ego that you're better than everyone else. Otherwise you will never start your own business. And so that ego, if you have to keep it in check, you have to be able to teach what you know, you have to be able to share what you know. And you also have to understand that some people are just going to be better at certain tasks. If you can focus on that part, you will be successful in terms of delegation. So Because I was in med school when I started USA Staffing Services, because I was in residency working 80 hours, I needed to learn those skills very early in my entrepreneur career. All of our team was remote. So I was already from the beginning thinking about how we can communicate remotely, continue to grow the business remotely, continue to hold expectations of the team so that everyone was on the same page. And that is a skill that's taken me 10 years and I'm still learning as I go. I still make mistakes. It's something that you have to consciously work on. So if you have that team in place, as you bring on new team members, teach them how you think so that when you ask them to do something, they're going to think like you and do it the way or similar to the way you would do or better. You just don't want them to do it worse than you, (laughs) you would normally do. Otherwise, you start going on a backwards trail. So uh, currently for USA Staffing, I have a wonderful team. My team is amazing. I have a great controller to help with the uh, financial payroll processing for all 50 states, keeps our line of credit in check. I have a payroll manager who's stepped up and started as a payroll processor and has given more responsibilities. She's doing amazing work, keeping track of all the time cards coming in and customers to invoice. I have a revenue manager, also known as a sales manager. His name is Shane. He's hitting the sales hard while at the same time an operations supervisor working hand in hand to make sure the operations go very well. I would say the most important piece of our team is our staffing coordinator, given our nature of our business. And Yvonne is one of those people that really keeps everybody in check. And the nice thing about our team is we are all in one office, which is good, except for our director of compliance. He's actually still in Chicago. He's our oldest employee. Our director of compliance is a good thing that he's not in the office because he can have that neutral third party kind of, No approach to situations and really think outside the box. He's not necessarily emotionally invested in the friendship of the office, more of a hey, are we on track to be compliant throughout the year? So the team is amazing and I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my team.
1: I guess your main team, even though we were talking about how many employees you could have at one point, what is it, five or six? It sounds like main parts or employees that are kind of ahead of it that run all of it? Six. Okay
0: six employees in our core office. And then we have the authorized dealers. We have about 200 authorized dealers throughout the country. And then those authorized dealers work with the temporary workers and the customers to bring in new business.
1: So why do you do all this stuff? I love it. (laughs) I know, but it's just kind of crazy. I feel like a doctor usually just gets really passionate about medicine or a business person kind of gets really passionate about business. And then there's other things that... Maybe if we have time, we can talk about that you do now, where I'm looking at all these other things that you kind of do too. So I'm just trying to get, maybe we can dive in a little bit later, maybe not even on this interview, we do something separate on how you're able to manage your time, because it seems like you have to be a master of it based on what I'm seeing.
0: I'll answer the question real quickly. And that is from the 10 years I was started med school and finished fellowship, medicine dramatically changed. It was a period of rapid change in healthcare law, insurance benefits, you name it. And so the medical world really transitioned from an independent practice-based model to more of a hospital-run model where a lot of MBAs, a lot of non-doctors were running the hospitals. And that was a big change over a decade, but it happened to be the decade I was studying to be a doctor. And so when I got out, it wasn't what I wanted to be. If you look back 20 years ago, you know, being a doctor, you ran your own business. Doctors are by nature entrepreneurial. They just typically spend their time running their business, whether it's a kidney doctor running his dialysis, whether it's a heart doctor running his cardiac clinic, whether it's a family practice running his clinic. Now you don't see those primary care offices independent anymore. And so there's actually a lot of unrest in the medical field because the doctors, while they might be getting a little bit better salary and more predictable salary, they still have that entrepreneur edge kind of hardwired into them it's uneasiness that they feel. And so they're all jealous that I have another avenue to express those desires.
1: Was there a reason that you wanted to go in the medical field? Because again, when you're starting this on the side, I know it was to pay back some of your loans It sounded like or whatnot. And it sounds like, again, you're kind of passionate about both, but I'm just wondering, was there a reason for you wanting to be a doctor?
0: Throughout my life, When I had to tell my parents what I wanted to be when I was in kindergarten, I always said a physician, a doctor. I had a great pediatrician growing up. He is still one of those role models. He's got those lasting impressions on me as a kid, being sick and going to him and getting better. And so there's a mystical, magical thing that I just always loved about being a doctor. Plus, again, during that time, it was a way to be self-employed, to find solutions, to help people in need independently of being an employee. And so throughout my childhood and even early adolescence, my dad always had great, stable jobs, but it was never guaranteed. I mean, he stayed at companies for 10 years, but you knew deep down, and it was never spoken, but you always knew that the company could let employees go at any time. And so it was just that uncertainty that I felt that as a physician, I would not have to deal. And aligned with a lot of my goals in life, which was to be self-sufficient, to be self-employed, to help people in need. And that's really where the core of everything came from. But if I look back further in my life, I do see that I ran a painting business in high school and I ran a Mr. Fix-It type of service in the summers in college. And I was always starting these little gigs because I never wanted to just work for the local grocery store, bagging groceries or for the local restaurant. I did those jobs, but I was never satisfied with them. I was really satisfied when I would find a solution in the neighborhood or the family or something I could build for my time and fix it. And so if I look back at it, the entrepreneur spirit was always there, but I thought that being a physician would kind of merge the two together early on in my life.
1: I don't think I've asked, are you a specialty doctor or what are your work hours now when you're a doctor and you still do those night shifts? And I'm just curious now.
0: So while in residency, I did a double residency in pediatrics and internal medicine. So I am able to care for pediatric patients all the way up to 100. So zero to 100, or if you will. Right now, my current job is just the nights in an adult-only hospital. So I'm a hospitalist. So kind of a specialist in that we work, again, as an employee of the hospital, but we work to optimize the care in the hospital.
1: Ultimately, do you have life plan with this? Will you see a vision from 20, 30 years from now? Are you still going to be a doctor and a businessman or what's your plan going forward with that?
0: I'll always be a doctor. Whether I pick up shifts will be debatable, but with the delivery of telemedicine now, I think I can definitely maintain it. Oh, but. Yeah. Good call. Five-year goal is to own a hospital. I really believe that the hospital system has gone too far away from the core of what it should be, which is run by hospitals, run by physicians for patients with patients' care in mind. And that we've just gone too far, too many mergers and acquisitions within the hospital and acute care setting. And I think what's going to happen in the next five to 10 years is that they're going to start selling off hospitals because they can't maintain them. Medicare is going to decrease and we're going to need a revival of the healthcare system in a way that's never been seen before. And I believe I can help with that. So my short-term goal is to make money so I can start investing and buying in a hospital so I can run it the way it should be run.
1: How much would a hospital cost?
0: I don't know. I think it's going to be for (laughs) sales.
1: Trying to get it at a discount?
0: Yeah, private equity group that you know has a few million to burn, take it, be yeah, a minority shareholder.
1: <laughs> okay, well, that's what I was curious about. I didn't know if you are trying to like raise it from doctors or whatever. I'm just curious because I'm like, well, if you did do private equity, are you going to get in the same issue where you're saying?
0: Potentially. The core of the model, though, is wrong in the hospitals right now. Tell
1: us about that because I think you know about that. I don't think myself and probably a lot of other people. I mean, I can maybe think about what happens, but can you just give us an overview of a little bit better?
0: Sure. When hospitals started to buy independent practices and bring them in the hospital, they transitioned from a essentially a commission model to a salary model. And so the doctors were initially what, you know, you ate whatever you killed. So from a doctor, if you saw 10 patients, you billed for 10 patients, you collected 10 patients' worth of payments from the insurance, that was your practice. When they sold to the hospital, they got a payday, which is great for all entrepreneurs, but then they were given a salary.
1: Sorry, when they sold, it means a doctor's practice? He sold it to the hospital hospital?
0: Yes. Over the course between 2006 to 2016, a lot of practices were sold to the hospital. So the hospital was paying cash for the practices and they would acquire all the patients in the practice, plus the doctors working in the practice. And then the hospital system would take over the billing and collecting. And in exchange, they would pay a salary to the doctor's. Well, this happened multiple times where as soon as the last doctor signed their unemployment agreement, all of their salaries decreased because in their contract, it said that the compensation can change at any given notice. And so they would wait until that last physician signed, and then they would drop the salaries on all the physicians from that practice, and they would all be in a multi-year contract, three years, five years. So now the doctors sold their practice, they get a salary. And now the hospital is saying, oh, by the way, you need to see more patients. You need to justify your salary now or else we're going to lower your salary even more. We're not going to let you out of the contract. We're just going to pay you less.
1: Can you give us a good example of how much they might have been making before and what's a decrease in doctor's salary? And this is actually kind of fascinating. I don't know how much of a decrease is 10%. Are we talking like half? What are we talking about here?
0: Well, specialty practice, the doctor can make between $500,000 and a million dollars a year in profit. When they sold the practice, they probably sold it for $2 million up front, and then they were guaranteed a salary of, let's say, $400,000, which is kind of guaranteed. They were promised this kind of lifestyle type of transition where they didn't have to work as much. They can see less patients. There was less pressure on running their practice. But then it went from $400,000 to $200,000 as their base. What was happening is that they would get commission or they would get additional revenue if they met the threshold set by the hospital. So an example would be if you build 1,000 units in a given year, after 1,000 units, you would get 20% of everything else you build. But then it went up from 1,000 units to 2,000 units. And then it went from 2,000 units to 3,000 units before you got that extra bonus. And so there was two ways. They reduced their base salary and they increased the thresholds for commission, just like any other sales position throughout the country, any other industry, they do the same thing. And that's what happened when you brought in business people to run the hospital, they thought like business people. And so they took the techniques that were popular in businesses to stimulate sales and growth, and they tried to apply it to physicians. That's been running now for a while, but what's changed now in the last two years is that they've completely removed the commission model. They've gotten the doctors so settled with just making a base because their commission thresholds were so high that they weren't ever achieving it. So they were able to then negotiate with the physicians, remove the commission model, and just have a little bit higher base. A year or two later, now that base is saying, well, you have to do more work. You're not justifying your salary. And so these arbitrary kind of doing more work and not making your salary, those are all arbitrary because they don't actually tell you the numbers. Whereas a physician in their own practice, they can see the revenue, they can see the salary, they can see the profits. In a hospital, it's all hidden. in administration fees. So all you're told is you have to make more money, you have to bill more, you have to build more levels, higher acuity levels. It's becoming a mess. And I think the unrest in the physician population is throughout the country. I have friends that are in multiple different hospitals and specialties and non-specialty cares. All of them are unhappy with their compensation at this time.
1: If you're a business owner, chances are you're reevaluating the way you do business. Just like me, when I'm trying to convince you to join our Patreon membership. Anyhow, establishing your online presence is no longer optional. It's necessary. Pivoting quickly is hard enough, but finding the people to make it happen can feel like a full-time job. Fiverr's freelancing platform helps you find the right talent to build your online presence fast. Finding the right freelancer can be frustrating and time-consuming, not to mention expensive. There are so many factors, like how much will it cost, and how can you be sure they'll even deliver? Fiverr lets you hire freelancers with proven track records and clear pricing so you're never in the dark. Whether it's building your first website or designing social graphics to celebrate years of business, Fiverr connects you with the talent you need to keep moving forward. I even made a hire today on Fiverr, and they were done with my project in less than three hours. Evolve, adapt, and grow your business with Fiverr. Fiverr offers meaningful resources to help SMBs transition into a quote-unquote new normal. They connect businesses with freelancers offering hundreds of digital services. Graphic design, copywriting, web programming, filming, editing, voiceover, music, and more. Work with confidence. Search by service, deadline, price, reviews, and more. Know exactly what you're paying for up front. No hourly rates or negotiating. Payment is released to the freelancer once you approve the work. 24-7 customer service anytime you have an issue. Fiverr is here to help. Quality talent you can count on. Sellers have worked with influential brands including Google, Netflix, MIT, and PayPal. Review seller ratings, buyer feedback, and more to select the right freelancer based on your budget. Find your talent today at Fiverr.com and receive 10% off at your first order using our code MILLIONAIRE. All the digital services you need are in one place at Fiverr. That's F-I-V-E-R-R.com, code MILLIONAIRE. Again, that's Fiverr.com, Code millionaire. And thank you, Fiverr, for supporting our podcast and our listeners for checking out these sponsors so we can keep bringing you these episodes. The only good thing is that you came in right after this. You know, you could see all these doctors where maybe if you were 10 or 15 years earlier, you might have had your own practice and kind of been locked in the same issue that these guys are having.
0: Yeah. If I would have started my own practice, I would have been in a tough situation because insurance laws get harder and harder as well. But if I was later, I would never know any different. And so I might've made a different decision and maybe not gone to med school if I would have seen the trend better. So I was right in that perfect 10-year gap where all those changes happen. And I remember stories of doctors at in medical school say, hey, things are changing. Just be prepared. And I was like, oh yeah, it'll be fine. No worries. <laughs> Yeah,
1: because actually I heard the same thing when I was doing commercial real estate. They were talking about a lot of these doctors having their own offices. It might be, I don't know, eight person offices where they're selling them to the hospitals and then having to go to the hospitals. And we're talking about them having to sell their own little practices or not the actual practice, but the real estate that they were in but I was understanding that transition too. So I have heard about this. I guess I just didn't understand that. Did it happen to a high percentage of doctors, it sounds like, that are around the hospital? It just sounds like that most of it's gone that way, and now you're saying there's getting some pushback?
0: Yeah, no, I would say 80 to 90% of all practices were sold during that period or shortly after. Wow. The practices that aren't sold are very few and far between. A lot of them just had, you know, they were 65, and so they just shut down, or a lot of them just quit or did something else. Even when they call themselves private practice, they actually, most of the time, they're getting paychecks. There's very few. I can't think of any off the top of my head that's a true private practice.
1: Now, are some of those guys going to be getting out of their contract soon? And that's why why they still have this energy left in them, these doctors? They're thinking about trying to do the model differently?
0: It's a catch-22 because for me, I won't pay off my student loans until I'm like 55 or 60. The medical school loans are funny because I have a 9% interest rate on them. Federal loans at that time, they locked it in. It's hard to refinance. I have been able to refinance since then, but for a long time, I had 9%. So a lot of these doctors, you just succumb to the fact that you're going to have to pay off your loans over a long period of time. The second thing is while you're in medical school, residency, and fellowship, you are living $8 an hour, which is fine. But when you first get that first paycheck, instead of continuing to live at $8 an hour, you want to live a little bit nicer. (laughs) So you don't pay off those student loans the way it's recommended, which is continuing to live like a resident for a while. Are you one of those guys? Yeah, I had the opportunity with the business. And I was like, oh yeah, I can put more money into the business.
1: Well, did you buy nice stuff too? That's what I'm asking.
0: No, you know, I haven't bought the nice car. I did end up buying a house which I love. I love my house.
1: You can't pay off your student loans
0: early? You can't. You have to have the money to do it. <laughs> but
1: don't you have the money through being a doctor and your other business? Is your other business USA Staffing Profitable?
0: It is. Yeah. But again, as an entrepreneur, you're always reinvesting into the business.
1: So you'd rather do that than pay off your... Yeah. You're not a Dave Ramsey guy. Do you know who Dave Ramsey is?
0: <laughs> yeah, I know Dave Ramsey. I'm the opposite <laughs> of Dave Ramsey.
1: Oh, okay. You're the anti-Dave Ramsey. It's understood. Obviously, some people want to keep car loans, even though they might be a millionaire, right? You know, it's just different strategies or different thoughts.
0: Yeah, better use of money. I think I can get 14% return on my money or higher, 50%. For instance, last year, we did a 50% increase of sales. So we went from 7 million to 15 million in sales last year. So if you constantly reinvest in yourself, you can generate more profit in the end. But again, there is a payoff. You do have to protect yourself.
1: I like your mindset, though.
0: Just because you're a millionaire too doesn't mean that you have cash. I agree. A lot of millionaires don't have the cash, you know, it's equity in business, equity in house, a whole bunch of other equity plays, or it's investing and it's returning, it's making more money in the stock market or investments than it is in your pocket or paying off loans.
1: Did you say making money in the stock market?
0: now.
1: (laughs) I like your perspective because I like opposite perspective. Everyone who comes on for me, I've never been in debt or had to be in debt or even had a credit card for me. I've never, trust me, I understand your viewpoint of like, okay, I don't want to pay that down because I know I can make a higher percentage return. So financially it makes more sense to do what you're doing. It's just like some people sleep well at night and can sleep well at night with loans, and some people can't. You know, it's just how risk averse are you? So, for anyone who's listening, just think about that for yourself. So, some people just would have issues with that when others, obviously, like yourself, you seem fine, and especially with your time management on having two careers. So, I don't see much of an issue where I think I'd be way more worried if you just had even had one business versus kind of the guaranteed. If I put yeah. myself in your shoes, I'm like, I'd probably feel way better if I was a doctor too and had another business because then you're kind of hedging your bets there on the revenue that you bring in personally for yourself.
0: Absolutely. Couldn't have said better. I could always go back to being a doctor if everything hits the floor. But the other thing is that it's really important, like you mentioned, what allows you to sleep at night, what calms your nerves, what allows you to be better at what you do a better dad, a better husband, a better employee, or a better person in general, if those loans really cause anxiety or distress, then don't have them. Now, with that said, I was somebody that, even though I was working hard in college, I had student loans. And the first loan I got when I started the first business, the first traditional staffing firm in 2006, was $250,000 line of credit as a college student in 2006. So imagine all the economic things going on in 2006.
1: Did you get that right before things went south?
0: Yeah, well, it was kind of a hedgy at that time.
1: That's what I thought. It's in limbo when you got that credit line.
0: Yeah, it was the factoring line of credit. So if, as long as I had invoices to show, they would give me money to run the payroll because I had to run the payroll every week and I was invoicing every week. So it worked out very well. But to sign those documents as a 20-year-old, like, all right, yeah, this is what I need to do for the business. Up until 2014, it was always me supplying the money for the business and figuring it out.
1: You're good at managing money, huh?
0: I feel like I have a good strategy at managing money.
1: You just have to be very good to make sure you're looking at your books constantly. That's kind of crazy that you're able to pull that off. So, I mean, yeah, more hats to you that you're able to do that. I couldn't even imagine. Yeah, we understand your perspective on being able to financially flow the business income out and not be too worried what's going to happen, obviously.
0: Yeah, it was always based on the idea that I had billable hours. I had to pay the employees. So I had this revenue in my pocket that was going to be paid in 60 days. I just needed to use it. I needed to cash it in a little bit early. And so that's where factoring really allowed me to jumpstart staffing. And now, as you continue to grow, you move away from the higher interest loans like factoring to more lower interest loans, traditional lines of credit. And it really helps with your overhead and reducing your costs. You just have to do whatever it takes to kind of get off the ground and worry about optimizing it later. I think a lot of entrepreneurs in today's society, they want to go right to billion dollar valuation and they want to be profitable as soon as possible, which is good, but you have to realize that you might not get the cheapest pricing until you grow a little bit. Whether it's uh, manufacturing, whether it's uh, employees, whatever it is, you have to be willing to understand that economies of scale are really important. and. That's one of the biggest pieces why we are valuable to our authorized dealer network at USA Staffing is we get to combine essentially 200 offices, the borrowing capacity, the workers' comp, the payroll functionality. We get to spread that over a lot of different offices, and so our relative cost to the authorized dealer is cheaper than if they brought it in-house themselves.
1: Did you have this perspective because you're like a doctor and they do something similar in like the, the healthcare system? I mean, I'm just throwing this out there. I don't know if that's true. I'm just wondering what gave you this perspective to do this with USA Staffing?
0: When I got my first car, I had to go into the insurance agency and I said, okay, well, let me write you a check. And they said, oh, you have to write it to the policy owner. And I'm like, well, you represent that policy. No, no, no. I don't take your money. They handle the claims. They write the check. And so right away, I think really early in my life, I said, well, how do you make your money? Well, I get a commission from the check you send to corporate. Really? That fascinated me. (laughs) So so I just asked a lot of questions early on. But no, there's nothing in medicine. In fact, I wish there was, be probably better. And that's definitely a perspective I'm trying to bring to doctors. You don't have to be their employer to provide shared services. You can be a shared service setup without making everybody your employee.
1: So you'll have to give me a percentage of your business for the healthcare system when we do that. Since I just said that,
0: <laughs> you just gave it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I mean, it makes
1: perfect sense.
0: Five years, ten years. <laughs> With your hospital, you can
1: name the hospital after me if you want.
0: It might be in Idaho. I don't know where this hospital is going to be. It's going to be, you know, somewhere far away that aren't small. And we
1: know you're going to get a mortgage on it. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, of course. <laughs> someone else's money. Let someone else take the risk. <laughs>
1: I guess we haven't stuck to the timeline as much just because I got so interested in you being able to balance your life and you had too much free time. So you wanted to write a book too.
0: I told my dad a long time ago, I said, someday I'm going to write a book about my life. And he's like, who's going to care about your life? <laughs> he loves me and I love him, but.
1: You can send him this interview. So he said, one person, dad, one person, dad, spend an hour with me because he was wondering about my life.
0: Yeah, there you go. And so I made so many mistakes. So in my book, I just talk about literally all the mistakes I've made, just trying to help entrepreneurs, help people, help moms, dads, spouses, help them to really bring a perspective in life. Because one of the things that I've always struggled with is when people were talking about work-life balance. And I just never sat with me because when I was working, I was living. And so how can I distinguish work and life if I was living every time I was working? And so I couldn't find that separation. And so I really came up with this model over several years I'm trying to change the whole culture of work-life balance and call it work-passion-life balance and really incorporate this third component, which is relationship with yourself. What makes you happy? And that isn't work and that isn't living. That's a separate entity and that can overlap with work and it can overlap with living, but it should be something separate. It should be something, whether it's gardening, whether it's fixing machines, whether it's reading, whatever it is that makes you happy. That should be kind of equal balance with those other two. And just a brief overview of the book, it's all about relationships with different people. So work is a relationship that's very selfless, meaning you have to put in hours and you might not get that back. You might get a check. You might get paid. But you're not getting a relationship back. It's a very selfless relationship in many aspects. And that could relate to work like a job, but it also can be work in a relationship like a daughter or son that you're really struggling to connect with. You have to put in work in that relationship or a parent that you never really had a good relationship with. You have to put work in it. You have to be selfless in it for a while. The life, I kind of coined as a mutually beneficial relationship. So that is relationship you have with friends, but also significant others, family, anybody who you can mutually benefit, you give and you can receive as part of that relationship. And then that third component is passion, where it's just very selfish. It's what you do for yourself to bring yourself happiness. And if you line up those three circles and you overlap them in a Venn diagram, the more overlap between any two areas of those circles creates that middle circle in that Venn diagram. And and the more overlap you have between any two circles, the bigger that center circle is. And that's what I call your quality of your life, your balance of your life, whatever you want to coin it. But it's really the proof that you can have a balanced, happy life if you can focus on any two circles.
1: And you said, do you talk about some of the things that went negatively during this aspect of your whole life in the book?
0: Yeah. Well, I I touched on some of it, the challenges with my first marriage, challenges with friends and family.
1: You sound like Superman to me. That's what I was wondering. (laughs) I heard the marriage. Other than that, I mean, it seems like everything else has gone well.
0: Yeah. I mean, now it is.
1: I know. (laughs) Just to bring you back down to earth a little bit, just maybe people can relate a little bit more. I mean. What are some other hardships that you've had in being a doctor while also growing this business?
0: Yeah. To give a few examples, one is just while you're in medical school and running all these businesses, you don't call your own family as much and you lose track of friends. And I've missed different times in people's lives and I've regretted it. Working hard in the business is not the same as being a good person a lot of times. You have to make some challenging decisions, whether to skip events like family gatherings or whether you have to skip people's birthdays to go out and friendship wise. But the other components in that is that I didn't put in the work related to a lot of those relationships. I didn't put in the work with my first wife and I I didn't put in the work with my friends. And so I wasn't a really good friend at all. I wasn't mutually beneficial with anybody. I was really just kind of my passion circle, if you will, was too big. It wasn't overlapping with other areas. And so I needed to kind of keep it in check. But I talk a lot about even with my wife, Laura, when we first moved to Tampa, we tried to start another business and she was running the day-to-day and I talk a lot about how my passion was to run the business, but she considered it a job. And there was a disconnect even while we were dating and engaged before we got married where there was a disconnect of expectations of the relationship. And I had a lot of lessons to learn from that And that, yeah, you can go into business with your significant other, but you have to be on the same page. And so I talk about a couple of the things I would want to talk about how we could be more efficient in the office. And she would be like, hey, we're home. We don't talk about work at home. <laughs> you know? You're my person right now. I, I don't want to talk about work. I don't want to talk about my job. And I was like, whoa, that's not your, this is our thing. And she goes, no, it's a job. And so it was just a different level of expectation that we overcame.
1: Are you worried about you doing that again?
0: So part of me writing the book was to make sure that I put it on my desk and at my home to make sure that I keep that circle, that work, passion, life balance in check. And so I think I came up with a philosophy that works very well for me, that I I am comfortable with sharing with other people. And I hope that other people benefit from it, from the philosophy that I'm approaching. But I'm very conscious of the fact. So we are no longer in business together. My wife and I are very happily married. Two kids, we're not in business. (laughs) We're not one of those people that, that can do it. That's okay. We tried it and it didn't work. So we have a great relationship. She's extremely supportive and I consciously make the time. And I use tricks in my calendar and make sure that I schedule date nights and make sure that just have enough time. And sometimes it's very simple. She says, be home by six. I could be home by six. Yeah, that's okay. That's a mutually beneficial time.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're definitely the overachiever because like most of us might just a post-it note, but you had to write a book to remind yourself. <laughs> so were you just writing a book on the weekend? How was that? Because it seems like it was your first book.
0: Yeah, it was my first book.
1: Are you going to write another one? I say first one. I'm assuming there's going to be another one.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. We'll see how it goes. I mean, it's not cheap. I mean, it can be cheap, but it wasn't cheap for me. But it took me about a year and I a lot of revisions, a lot of time. Yeah, weekends for sure.
1: Did you actually write it or did you hire someone to help you?
0: I hired somebody to write the words. I got all the concepts. I talked it through. I evaluated every. We did the outlines together, the chapters together. It's all my thoughts. I'm just not a good writer. <laughs> you know? Well, I've interviewed
1: somebody who does that. And that's what I was going to suggest. If you wrote it yourself, I agree with you. If I could just speak it out, right, versus having to write take me years I would imagine versus if you're doing it that way but I mean obviously still all of your thoughts you're just again very efficient obviously we found out and you're able to outsource that opportunity to somebody else and if you can record it and send it to them or something like that then they help you put together the actual book so yeah I was referring to episode 89 in case anyone's wondering with angela everyone loves that episode yeah just straight okay. a fact about it's the author incubator I don't know if you used her or somebody else but No, I didn't. There's more services like that. She does it more from a business aspect, if you will, but glad to hear that you didn't single-handedly write it yourself too, because I'm like, there's no no way (laughs) I could imagine you writing the book yourself too.
0: (laughs) I learned very early, you know, Dr. Scribbling. Oh yeah, good call. Definitely in my (laughs) wheelhouse. Scribble, scribble, normal. Scribble, scribble, normal.
1: (laughs) With that, I guess we should expect a hospital by you from five years or so. Maybe we can catch up with you then.
0: That'd be great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what the economy does. Who knows, but. Yeah, that's my short term goals. And you know, staffing is a challenge because it has very low profit margin. So a, a normal profit margin for a temporary staffing firm is between three and five percent net profit. So when you're managing people and you're managing processes to maximize from three percent profit to three and a half percent profit, you learn a lot of skills. And so I'm looking forward to take those skills and apply it to the healthcare industry, which desperately needs some new tactics in terms of managing.
1: Well, good luck. And thank you for should I call you doctor or do you not like that?
0: Well, I mean, uh, yeah,
1: (laughs) call me whatever you want. I'm not going to try to say your last name. Kolinsky, is that?
0: Kolinsky. Yeah, you did it good. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Kolinsky. Yeah. Oh, we appreciate you coming on and sharing your story here. If you had any last words of wisdom for anyone who is listening, what would that be?
0: If you're an entrepreneur at heart and you try to debate what you should do, go with what you're feeling in terms of your heart, whatever your passion is. As long as you have a reason of what keeps you up at night, whatever you're thinking about, just go for it, especially if you're in a position where you can do it and take that chance. Nothing good will come unless you say yes. Yes to opportunities, yes to this entrepreneur opportunity, or yes to something else in life. But don't sell yourself short. Know your own value and keep trying new things.
1: Thank you again for coming on and sharing your story. There's a couple other things that you're working on, too, that we didn't get a chance to touch on. I guess I might have got too sideways with the medical stuff, but again, just fascinated by it. But you help small startup businesses as well with your investment group. I think that's the email that I originally reached out to you on.
0: Yeah, I've been very fortunate to work with other entrepreneurs as well. And I evaluate different opportunities and I invest in small startups. But really, it's an owner-operator type of feel and something I can contribute to help them grow.
1: Maybe if it's okay with you, if we could do like another interview or a quick one, maybe on like any suggestions you might have for startups or even like if we could see ways that you're able to organize and stay efficient with your time, that I think that could be really helpful for a lot of people, especially since a lot of people have to work from home now as well. And just trying to figure that out, it seems like it's one of your superpowers. And maybe if you're able to give some startup advice, we'd love to have you back maybe to do a quick interview, maybe with some people who actually listen to the podcast. We've been doing monthly calls and maybe they could ask you some questions on your aspects of. Being able to work your calendar and any advice you have for them, that'd be awesome.
0: Yeah. Question and answer would be wonderful.
1: Okay, cool. We'll schedule that here in the future. So again, thank you for coming on and sharing your story and have a good day at home.
0: All right. Sounds great. Thank you.
1: Hey there, Millionaire Interviews listener. Even though you're probably alone right now while listening to this podcast, know that at this very second you're actually listening with thousands of other listeners all around the globe. And if you'd like to connect with those listeners all around the globe, or maybe you want to ask one of our guests a question about their episode, well then check out our Facebook group. Just search for Millionaire Interviews Podcast. Hasta luego, bebe.